Hey guys, Jared Lopes here from Dad's Hired. Welcome to week two of A Parent's Guide to Apologetics. If you missed week one, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that first before diving into today's episode. This is a five-week mini-series where each week my friend Chris Hilkin will walk us through what it looks like to lead our family well when it comes to apologetics and specifically how to equip our kids with a Christian worldview as we train them to live as Jesus followers in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile toward the things of God. You can take these conversations deeper by going to dadtired.com forward slash homework. Those are all free worksheets for you. They're filled with an overview of each week's topics. There's questions there to ask your kids at the dinner table. There's also the Bible passages that Chris pulled from for the series. This is all a completely free resource to you as a way for us to continue to try to equip men to lead their family well. If you love the mission of Dad Tired and you want to be part of it and see it expanded, you can go to dadtired.com forward slash give and become a monthly partner. Again, you can go to dadtired.com forward slash give to become a monthly partner. With that being said, let's dive into week two. In John chapter 20, we get this really unique interaction between Thomas and Jesus. Thomas is kind of affectionately known as Doubting Thomas because he says, if I don't see the risen Christ myself, if I don't see Jesus and put my fingers in the holes in his hands and feet, I'm just not going to believe anything that you guys are saying. I don't think this guy came back from the dead. He has a what we call an a priori understanding. He agreed. He already postulated and thought ahead of time. This is not possible. So I'm going to need evidence for it myself. And, and while we can sometimes kind of caricaturize Thomas as this doubter, right? I think a lot of us as guys and as dads, we're built in a similar way. Maybe you're, you're a little bit more left brain and cerebral, and that's just kind of the way that God hardwired you. And I think that's the way that God hardwired me. And so in my faith and in my life, there's been a number of times where I feel like I have kind of proverbially approached the throne of God and said, God, I need evidence for this thing. I need proof for this thing. I'm not good at taking things on blind faith. And for a lot of us as dads, that's a, that's a really good quality to have to have discernment and to be just kind of the natural skeptic. And maybe you're built like me in that. Like every time someone tells you that this is going to cure your disease, or I can't tell you how many times someone has said, let's go fishing. I've got a fishing spot that never fails, right? You're going to catch the big one. You're going to come home with a lot of good dinner. You know, like I start with skepticism. When someone says they had some supernatural experience or they had a vision, I start by thinking that they're not telling the truth. And then I kind of put the burden of proof on them to convince me that it is true. And, And I don't think that's wrong. In fact, I think the opposite can be problematic if you just believe anyone, anything that anyone tells you all the time, right? That's where televangelists can get their money sometimes or people selling like snake oil or like holy water from the holy lands. Like the reason that creates so much income for people is because of a lack of discernment. But if you're built like me, you hear these stories of scripture and you hear the idea of God and the infinite, omniscient, powerful deity of the universe. And you just have to, your cog have to start turning and going, where is the evidence for this stuff? And I grew up pretty frustrated because I just was never taught this stuff. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's that it was never really placed in front of me. And so I'd like to do that for you guys. That's kind of the what Jared and I were talking about for, for you guys in the Dad Tired podcast was what would it look like to create a series of apologetic conversations for those of us who are a little bit more skeptical or for those of us maybe we are pot convinced just because we feel God's existence and we've experienced him. But maybe we raise or have raised or are raising skeptical kids. And the real hope that I have 
is that regardless of how my kids grow up, right? Like uh, my son Peyton is almost all head and almost no heart. He thinks through everything. And and so there's a chance that my son is going to have an extremely cerebral relationship with Jesus, that he intellectualizes God's love and that he can process what it means to be forgiven, but that he would lack some kind of experience with Jesus. He He would lack like kind of that deep fatherly to son love that the Bible talks about in the book of First John. And, and so I want to be equipped then with if I've got a son who follows Jesus with his head and the book of Deuteronomy and followed in the New Testament says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It seems like I might have a son who loves God with his mind simply. And I want to teach him how do I teach Peyton how to love God with his heart And for the others of us, we've got a a son or a daughter who they are very cerebral. And so they actually stumble and they fumble and they wrestle with the truth of God and his word and, and the reality of his being and his existence. And so we as dads want to be equipped to tackle that problem as well, to be able to answer those questions, to not be afraid of the doubt of our kids, but rather to stand in such a position that we're ready to answer those questions. And so our heart as Dad Tired is, is to present to you a meaningful, powerful, and cogent, which means understandable answer to some of these questions your kid might have. And, and again, we talked about the idea last time of the drip, not splash technique, that we want to be constantly talking through these things and creating a worldview in our kids that enables them to see everything through the lens of God and his love for them. And so today we're going to talk about the first of an actual argument for God's existence. This evidence that any worldview that we have, it's got to be, it's got to be backed by evidence if it's going to be meaningful and if it's going to translate. And so here's some evidence that I want to give you. And this is called the evidence from first cause. Okay. Some people use the idea of cosmology or the evidence from uh, non-contingency. Those are some big fancy words, but it kind of starts with this idea when we talk about arguments for God's existence that the Bible really never instructs us to believe based on blind faith. I think it's in the book of John, someone reaches out to Jesus and says that they don't believe that he's the Messiah. And, and, and Jesus points to his miracles. He says, why do you think I do the remarkable things that I do? I do it to prove to you who I am. Likewise, we talked about uh, doubting Thomas. When Thomas has his doubts, Jesus doesn't say, well, deal with it. He, he presents himself to Thomas and he extends his arm and he says, look, here I am. And this was kind of interesting for me as we jump into this conversation, which was totally not what I was taught growing up. But a Pew Research survey a few years back did a poll, and 51% of all scientists actually believe in a higher power and a deity. Even though, naturally speaking, the sciences, above everything else, attracts agnostics and atheists more than any other profession that we know of in terms of the sciences, but 51% still would say they believe in a higher power and a deity. That doesn't mean the theistic God of the Bible. That doesn't mean Judeo-Christian God, but they believe in some higher power and deity and that their science has compelled them to arrive at that conclusion, not void of what they think, but because of what they think. C.A. Russell, Colin Russell, he was a president of the British Society for the History of Science. He, he wrote this, and I think this is good for a lot of us who struggle with these ideas, that you watch anything on TV, and it seems like whenever the Christian and the atheist can converse with one another, or the, the Christian and the skeptic are having a conversation, the skeptic is almost always presented as, as intelligent and thought-provoking, and they're reading a book, and they're British, and they are of high society. And then the Christian is almost always caricaturized as like this outwoods backcountry 
guy that's just walking up like, I believe in Jesus because what are all these churches for? And and if you don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to stab you in the neck, right? It was, it's kind of the, you know, you watch, like what's that movie with Ricky Bobby? Talladega Nights. And they're Christian. They're having like dinner at the dinner table and around like Taco Bell and Mountain Dew. And they're like, I believe baby Jesus. It's just the most ridiculous thing. And Christians are kind of painted as that. There's a movie called Easy A where it basically idolizes and it props up sexuality in our culture. And then absolutely the Christians led by Amanda Bynes, they're walking, they're sitting in a circle and they're judging everyone and they're just concerned with how they feel. And yet they're all extreme hypocrites. And this is just kind of the way that mainstream media pits these two against each other. And and here's what C.A. Russell writes. He says, the common belief that the actual relationship between religion and science over the past few centuries has been marked by deep hostility is not only historically inaccurate, but actually it's a caricature so mean and grotesque that what needs to be explained is how it could possibly have achieved any degree of respectability. So he's saying this natural notion we might have in modern culture that for the past X amount of hundreds of years, science has been moving forward and and enlightening us and religion has done the opposite is that's such a non-historical fact that it's actually gross. That's what he says. It's a grotesque mischaricaturization of history. And in fact, some of the most brilliant minds in all of science have been theistic and deistic thinkers. Like Newton, he, he literally writes in, I think it's Principia Mathematica, where he says the reason he does his science is that people would know the grandeur of the God that he believes is there. The natural assumption we have, which I had growing up and, and led to a bout of atheism for me, was that, that science and religion are at odds with one another, but it's almost the opposite. You need an understanding of the universe that is consistent and reasonable and reliable to even do science in. So that's kind of where we're jumping in. Don't think that because we're talking about evidence for God's existence that we are jumping into some mythical, mystical realm of morons and psychophants and voodoo witch doctors of the savannah. That's not the case. This is 51% of scientists. These are leading astrophysicists. These are leading geneticists. Francis Collins, who was just awarded by Obama to sit in the most prestigious scientific seat in the whole nation, was criticized because he's a religious believer. He's a devout Christian And he basically is the first person to do any complete work with DNA, and he's a Christian theist. And so we want to jump in with this understanding. And again, if you struggle with this, or if your kid struggles with this, or if you might in the future, just just understand you do not stand in some isolated chamber of non-thinkers when we do the field of study of apologetics. We stand with some of the most brilliant minds who have ever lived And so we jump in with this simple conversation. We ask a question that that might be the biggest possible question you can ask. And this is the first argument for God's existence, a piece of evidence for his existence. And and, and it's a simple question and maybe one that we don't think about. But why is there something rather than nothing? More specifically, we observe a universe. We've got atoms and protons and leptons and planets and solar systems and galaxies and black holes and dark matter and dark energy and and quarks and leopards and, and, and dogs and cats and bees and dung beetles and the duck-billed platypus and a a pygmy slow loris and all these remarkable creatures. And we just kind of take their existence for granted or or we take being for granted. And we, we don't ask the biggest question, wouldn't it be easier? Like it seems like nothingness and accident and chance and would be much more likely to just keep being nothingness 
and we wouldn't be able to observe it or think about it or ask questions about it. So we, so we ask the biggest question possible. Why is there something? More specifically, why is there everything rather than nothing? And where did it all come from? That's a really fun one to kind of discuss with your kids and one that can get your brain hurting pretty quickly, but it doesn't need to get too deep or too, too complex. Here's an easy way of putting it to just kind of break it down. There's a whole leap negative. There's this whole argumentation model that you can find Leipzig's argument for existence based on first cause. Don't worry about it. Here's a simple way of understanding it. Everything that exists, exists from one or two possible reasons. There's only two real possible reasons that something exists. That something was either caused or it's eternal. Two ways that things exist. It either has always existed, so it doesn't need an explanation because it's eternal, or it is what we call contingent or it was caused. Something else made it that way. We can argue from basic experience, right? Things don't just pop into existence from nothing. You and I are contingent beings. What what are we contingent upon? We're contingent on our parents. We didn't come from nothing. We came from, well, you, you know, but you see um, a great work of art or one of the most common ways of arguing this is the, the watchmaker argument that if you were walking on the beach and you had no idea about who made a watch, but you found one in the sand and you saw its cogs and the way that it, it worked and turned and it, and it, and it told time and, and it had design and features and rhinestones and you would look at it and you, you might not know the name of the designer, you might not know their age or their gender or their genetic makeup or if they were fat or skinny or tall or short, but you would come to one conclusion that something made this thing. One of my favorite apologists named William Lane Craig, he asks us to think and imagine this scenario where you're walking in the middle of the forest and you notice this floating, glowing orb just suspended on the path that you're taking. And you ask your friend that's hiking with you, you say, man, where did this come from? How is this here? How did this come into being? And if your friend says, don't worry about it, move on, then they might be tired or they're hungry or they want to get to the campsite or whatever it is, because that's not really an answer. It requires an explanation. If you found a floating blue orb that was not natural or not something that you had seen before, or even if it was for it to be suspended, you'd ask a question, how did that thing get here? And anyone who says it doesn't need an explanation is just trying to move on. That's that's a non-answer. And so he just says, well, now imagine that blue orb got bigger. Instead of being the size of a baseball, it became the size of a car. Would it still require an explanation? Oh, for sure. Nothing about the size of the blue orb makes it any less reasonable to ask, where did this thing come from? Well, then when you make it as big as a planet, does it now cease to need an explanation for its existence or, or a reason why it's there? No. It would still need it. Nothing about size takes away that value. And now imagine that ball was as big as the universe is wide. Would it still require an explanation? Yeah. And so this is kind of the argument of the first cause or from causation, which is the universe, if we picture it as this just remarkably large and expanding glowing orb, like you'd be walking on a path and saying, where did this thing come from? It needs an explanation. So does the universe. And the universe, just like everything else inside of it, has one of two possible reasons. And that is A, that something caused it, or B, that it's always been here. It's eternal. And and we're going to take the second one, first of all, and modern cosmology actually helps out the theist here in a huge way. For a long time, the idea was that the universe has been eternal into the past. It's just always been in some kind of like stationary model of the universe where everything just kind of has been in a state of, in a static state. It's just been there. It's the steady state model of the universe. 
and the universe is eternal. And therefore, if the universe is eternal, it doesn't need an explanation for its existence because it's always been there. Only things that come into being or that begin need an explanation for why they begin. If they're eternal, then their reason is by their nature. They're just an eternal thing. So we ask the question, is the universe eternal or did it have a beginning? The short answer is it had a beginning. Now you can jump so far into this discussion if you want to, but there's three really good reasons to believe the universe had a beginning that modern science teaches us. The first one is, is called modern cosmology. And that's that everything that we see in a working model of the universe shows that our universe is expanding. There's a French guy, Le Madre, who observed this red light shift. There's a guy named Hubble who had a telescope who saw, and a guy named Vlenkin who kind of all worked together, Bored, Vlenkin, and Guth. They came up with a theorem. If you want to jump in everything I just said, you can. You can look up the red light shift. You can look up the expanding universe. You can look up that our universe expands at 68 kilometers per second per milliparsecond. doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. The truth is, is because of these different theorems, we know that our universe is actually getting bigger. It's expanding. It's expanding and it's increasing in how fast it's expanding. Well, what does that tell us? With a lot of science and a lot of cosmology and a lot of physics, we understand one thing to be true then. Vilenkin wrote this as part of his proof. Any universe that is on average expanding did not have an infinite past, but had a point at which it began. So any universe... Even if you were, went to a multiverse model, any universe that's expanding had a point at which it began. Secondly, our second really good reason to believe the universe had a beginning is the second law of thermodynamics, which says that all energies in a system experience entropy. They break down over time, which means there's only a finite usable amount of energy in our universe. And if there was an infinite number of days in the past, we would experience no more usable energy. It would all be gone. So there had to be a point at which it began in order for us to still experience usable energy. So the second law of thermodynamics, which is pretty strong, says that the universe can't be eternal in the past. Third, from philosophy, we just get the ridiculous idea that there's been an infinite number of past time events. Here's what I mean. I mean, how many days before today would we have had to have had before today could arrive? And it's a really weird way of thinking about it. Another reason we believe that the universe had to have had a beginning is because you would need an infinite number of yesterdays before you could ever get to today. You would need an infinite number of yesterdays before the universe came into existence, before the world as we know it came into existence, before we were able to experience present time. You'd need an infinite number of past time events. You'd always need one more day before yesterday in order to get to today. And just with philosophy, we understand that that's ridiculous. You can't have an infinite number of past days and still expect to arrive at today. You would need a point at which the time started. Now remember, when the universe began, that was the beginning of space and time and matter. So if that's when space, time, and matter all began, then before that beginning, there was nothing. You can't have matter without space because where would you put that? You can't have matter without time because when would you put that? You see what I'm saying? That's why they call it a a space-time continuum because at at one point, all three of those things came into existence at the same moment, space, time, and matter in an event we now call the, the Big Bang. Ironically, when the Big Bang model first came out, it wasn't Christians who opposed it. It was natural scientists because they understood the implication. If the universe had a point at which it began, 
Then before that, there was nothing. And what can nothing do? Mm. It can do nothing. Sometimes scientists say, well, it was nothing, but there was this pre-existent matter or these energy. Well, that's a misunderstanding of what the word nothing means. It means no thing. It's the, the absence of anything. And the number one rule of astrophysics is out of nothing, nothing comes. So some of this can get kind of complicated. And you can, you can do a deep dive, a level 401 class on this if you want to. But to keep it at a really base level, there's two ways the universe came into existence. It either has always been here or it had a point at which it began. And it can't have always been here, which means there had to have been a point at which it began. And if there's a point at which it began, then before that, there was no space, no time, and no matter. And if there was no space or time or matter, the universe can't have created itself. There wasn't these molecules working around that collided into each other to make everything that we understand, which means the only possible explanation is there is something, someone, some brain, some immaterial force outside of space, time, and matter that caused everything to come into being. Well, when you open the pages of the Bible, what kind of a God do we find? We find a God who is outside of space, who is outside of time, and does not have material substance. And this is what we mean when we say God, a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, personal, powerful, all-powerful, brilliant mind. This is what we mean when we talk about God. Here's what Vlenkin said. It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists, those who study the beginning of the universe, can no longer hide behind the possibility of an eternal past universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Well, what's the problem here? Why is a cosmic beginning a problem? Why would a cosmologist think that's a problem? I just told you. Because if there's a cosmic beginning, then before that beginning, the only reasonable explanation is that a spaceless, timeless, and immaterial powerful, unembodied mind created everything. And when you open the pages of scripture, that's the exact definition of God that we get in the text. We know that nothing can exist without a cause. Even even the atheist agrees with this. David Hume, writing to John Stewart in February of 1754, that is, he declared, allow me to tell you that I never asserted so absurd a proposition as that anything might arise without a cause. So he's, he's agreeing. Nothing just pops into being. Because if the universe just popped into being, then why doesn't anything ever just pop into being? And when we see a horse and we say, where did that thing come from? No one ever answers. Maybe that just popped into being. So we want to be consistent with our weights and measures of that. Mackie once wrote, he's a non-believer. He says, I myself find it hard to accept the notion of self-creation from nothing, even given unrestricted chance and how this can be given if there really is nothing. So what he says is, we're not going to argue that the universe created itself. So they have to borrow a model of the universe or create one out of nothing where possibly something before all space, time, and matter created everything. And right now, from where I sit, the thing that makes the most sense is that God created the universe. And when our kids ask and they're looking for these different explanations, we can help them by just saying, let's ask a really simple question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why does everything that we see, why is it here in the first place? The argument from cosmology then, following that, now that we've kind of established the universe began to exist, we can make this line of argumentation. Everything that begins to exist has a cause, has a reason. Number two, the universe began to exist. Number three, therefore the universe has a cause. 
So it follows from the premises of one and two, and that it's, it's the simplest line of argumentation you can get. And so if premises one and two are true, then the conclusion follows from those premises, which means we can make the conclusion right then that if everything that begins to exist has a cause, we can prove that the universe began to exist. At least all of what we know right now is that that would be the case. Even people who they might postulate like a quantum loop model or string theory or M theory, it doesn't get rid of Vilenkin's proof that any universe that is on average expanding has a point at which it began. So while those might do well to explain some aspects of our universe, they don't get away from the universe having a beginning. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And that cause is spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Which means we're not looking inside of the world that we understand for a solution because we can't look inside of creation in order to say what created creation. We got to look outside of creation, outside of space, outside of time, outside of matter in order to come to a conclusion. And what do we possibly have that's outside of space, time, and matter? Well, it would have to be a non-contingent being. It would have to be something that is not bound by space and time. It would have to be something that didn't have a cause of its existence, which means it had to have existed eternally. It has to exist by nature, by necessity of its nature. And God would, by definition, be an eternal being who exists by necessity of his own nature. It's powerful to start looking and learning about cosmology and and the way that science is making sense of the universe around us. And the great promise of the Enlightenment movement was that we would eventually do away with God, and yet we're finding kind of the opposite to be true. The more we're learning, the more problems we're getting in the field of science, as how to do science while still getting rid of the God hypothesis. I want to finish by reading you this one quote that I thought was kind of interesting. is by a guy named Robert Jastrow. He's a NASA planetary physicist and astronomer. And he wrote this, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason and science alone, this story ends like a bad dream. So it's saying for the guy who says there is no God, everything is materialistic, everything has an explanation in science. He says, these ideas are ending like a bad dream for that guy. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Scientists have no proof that life was not the result of an act of creation, but they are driven by the nature of their profession to seek explanations for the origin of life that lie within the boundaries of natural law. So what's he saying? He's saying we are arriving after centuries and centuries of study at this notion and this conclusion that the idea of the universe being kick-started by some transcendent cause is making more and more sense with modern models of the universe. And he says, as we, as we find we're getting Nobel Prizes for figuring out all these things and we're conquering the mountains of science, and as we pull ourselves up onto the, the summit, there's a group of Christians sitting there going, oh no, we've known this for thousands of years. And again, this doesn't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt anything. This doesn't prove to you that therefore you should surrender your life to Jesus or any of those things. And But this is an evidence. This is a reasonable way of understanding our universe that through modern science and cosmology and philosophy can give you a, a really good basis. If you have a, a kid who's skeptical, or maybe you yourself are skeptical, it's the first of the arguments we're going to talk about and cover about Is there a good reason to believe in God? And are there comparably good reasons to believe that God doesn't exist? And this is really what we want to wrestle with. And for those of us who are a little bit more left brain, who want a little bit more evidence, who don't take things just 
Don't just take your word for it. I encourage you to lean into these conversations, to ask yourselves these questions, and to be discussing this with your kids as we begin to shape their paradigm and shape their worldview and teach them not just what to think, but teach them how to think, how to ask questions, and how to arrive at a conclusion that makes sense and is its best in terms of all possible explanations, not simply based on we only listen to what science can say, but we say what's the best explanation in the whole marketplace of ideas. And I think personally, after studying this and going through it, that the God hypothesis that there is a God and that he's made himself known is the best explanation of all of the evidence. And we'll talk more about that next time.